Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Thanks to everyone who shared recommendations for my summer reading list last week, either directly or on our Discord. I've added a few to the stack that I'm excited to dig into. If you have any more, keep them coming. Speaking of our Discord, did you know we have one? One of the perks of joining our Patreon is access to the Tales to Terrify Discord server, where you can chat with staff, writers, narrators, and other children of the night. There you'll find everything from discussions about episodes, to sneak peeks into story ideas and upcoming works from some of our authors, to conversations about horror movies, books, games, and shows. And because no corner of the internet is complete without them, those terrifying, horrendous, disturbing pet pictures. So if you'd like to join the conversation, visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify and sign up. We are also coming up on the middle of the year, which means I'll soon be reaching out to artists and other creators and beginning to build our newest merch pack. 
I had some delivery hiccups last time, and I'm seriously hoping to avoid those this go. My favorite part of that last merch pack, though, that you can still get by signing up, I might add, is a -a one-of-a-kind custom Children of the Night coin. A little keepsake to prove your membership into our dark society. We really do thrive on the support of our patrons. You've made the growth of the show possible and helped make us one of the longest-running horror podcasts on the planet. We'd love to count more of you listeners among them. By signing up for Patreon, you can get everything from ad-free episodes and bonus content, of which we currently have another production in the works, to swag and shout-outs. We put each dollar we get back into this show, which can help us increase pay for writers and narrators, which means increasing both the quality and the quantity of the content we produce. Go to patreon.com slash tales to terrify and lend your shadow to our darkness. We'll be forever in your debt. We have a pair of stories for you this evening, a classic tale of a summer heat wave and revenge on eight legs. Our first story for the evening is a classic from W.F. Harvey. William Fryer Harvey was an English short story writer who left his mark in the horror and mystery genres. He hailed from a wealthy Quaker family, studied medicine at Oxford, and was a doctor by training. During World War I, he served in the Friends Ambulance Unit, later became a surgeon lieutenant in the Royal Navy. He suffered lung damage during a rescue mission and was plagued with poor health for the rest of his life. He devoted himself, instead, to writing macabre tales of gothic fiction. His first book of short stories was Midnight House in 1910. Harvey is best remembered for two of his most popular stories, considered minor masterpieces, The Beast with Five Fingers and August Heat. Children of the Night, join me for W.F. Harvey's August Heat, first published in Midnight House and Other Tales, 1910. Feniston Road, Clapham, August 20th, 1900 and. I have had what I believe to be the most remarkable day in my life, and while the events are still fresh in my mind, I wish to put them down on paper as clearly as possible. Let me say at the outset that my name is James Clarence Withencroft. I am 40 years old, in perfect health, never having known a day's illness. By profession I am an artist, not a very successful one, 
but I earn enough money by my black and white work to satisfy my necessary wants. My only near relative, a sister, died five years ago, so that I am independent. I breakfasted this morning at nine, and after glancing through the morning paper, I lighted my pipe and proceeded to let my mind wander, in the hope that I might chance upon some subject for my pencil. The room, though door and windows were open, was oppressively hot, and I had just made up my mind that the coolest and most comfortable place in the neighbourhood would be the deep end of the public swimming bath, when the idea came. I began to draw. So intent was I on my work that I left my lunch untouched, only stopping work when the clock of St. Jude's struck four. The final result, for a hurried sketch, was, I felt sure, the best thing I had done. It showed a criminal in the dock immediately after the judge had pronounced sentence. The man was fat, enormously fat. The flesh hung in rolls about his chin. It creased his huge, stumpy neck. He was clean-shaven, perhaps I should say a few days before he must have been clean-shaven, and almost bald. He stood in the dock, his short, clumsy fingers clasping the rail, looking straight in front of him. The feeling that his expression conveyed was not so much one of horror as of utter, absolute collapse. There seemed nothing in the man strong enough to sustain that mountain of flesh. I rolled up the sketch, and without quite knowing why, placed it in my pocket. Then, with a rare sense of happiness which the knowledge of a good thing well done gives, I left the house. I believe that I set out with the idea of calling upon Trenton, for I remember walking along Lytton Street and turning to the right along Gilchrist Road at the bottom of the hill, where the men were at work on the new tram lines. From there onwards, I have only the vaguest recollection of where I went. The one thing of which I was fully conscious was the awful heat that came up from the dusty asphalt pavement as an almost palpable wave. I longed for the thunder promised by the great banks of copper-coloured cloud that hung low over the western sky. I must have walked five or six miles when a small boy roused me from my reverie by asking the time. It was twenty minutes to seven. When he left me, I began to take stock of my bearings. I found myself standing before a gate that led into a yard bordered by a strip of thirsty earth, where there were flowers, purple stock and scarlet geranium. Above the entrance was a board with the inscription, Chas Atkinson, Monumental Mason, Worker in English and Italian Marbles. From the yard itself came a cheery whistle, the noise of hammer blows and the cold sound of steel meeting stone. A sudden impulse made me enter. A man was sitting with his back towards me, busy at work on a slab of curiously veined marble. He turned round as he heard my steps, and I stopped short. It was the man I had been drawing, whose portrait lay in my pocket. He sat there, huge and elephantine, the sweat pouring from his scalp, which he wiped with a red silk handkerchief. But though the face was the same, the expression was absolutely different. He greeted me smiling, as if we were old friends, and shook my hand. I apologise for my intrusion. Everything is hot and glary outside, I said. This seems an oasis in the wilderness. I don't know about the oasis, he replied, but it's certainly as hot as hot as hell. Take a seat, sir. He pointed to the end of the gravestone on which he was at work, and I sat down. That's a beautiful piece of stone you've got hold of, I said. He shook his head. In a way it is, he answered. The surface here is as fine as anything you could wish. But there's a big floor at the back, though I don't expect you'd ever notice it. 
I could never make a really good job of a bit of marble like that. It would be alright in the summer like this. It wouldn't mind the blasted heat. But wait till winter comes. There's nothing quite like frost to find out the weak points in stone. Then what's it for? I asked. The man burst out laughing. <laughs> You'd hardly believe me if I was to tell you it's for an exhibition. But it's the truth. Artists have exhibitions. So do grocers and butchers. We have them too. All the latest little things in headstones, you know? He went on to talk of marbles, which sort best withstood wind and rain, and which were easiest to work, and then of his garden and a new sort of carnation he had bought. At the end of every other minute he would drop his tools, wipe his shining head, and curse the heat. I said little, for I felt uneasy. There was something unnatural, uncanny, in meeting this man. I tried at first to persuade myself that I had seen him before, that his face, unknown to me, had found a place in some out-of-the-way corner of my memory, but I knew that I was practising little more than a plausible piece of self-deception. Mr Atkinson finished his work, spat on the ground, and got up with a sigh of relief. "'Eh, what do you think of that?' he said, with an air of evident pride. The inscription, which I read for the first time, was this. Sacred to the memory of James Clarence Withencroft. Born Jan 18th, 1860. He passed away very suddenly on August 20th, 1900. And in the midst of life, we are in death. For some time, I sat in silence. Then a cold shudder ran down my spine. I asked him where he had seen the name. Oh, I didn't see it anywhere, replied Mr Atkinson. I wanted some name, and I put down the first that came to my head. Why do you want to know? It's a strange coincidence, but it happens to be mine. He gave a long, low whistle. <whistles> and the dates? I can only answer for one of them, and that's correct. That's a rum go, he said. But he knew less than I did. I told him of my morning's work. I took the sketch from my pocket and showed it to him. As he looked, the expression of his face altered until it became more and more like that of the man I had drawn. Well, it was only the day before yesterday, he said, that I told Maria there were no such thing as ghosts. Neither of us had seen a ghost, but I knew what he meant. You probably heard my name, I said. And you must have seen me somewhere and have forgotten it. Were you at Clacton-on-Sea last July? I had never been to Clacton in my life. We were silent for some time. We were both looking at the same thing, the two dates on the gravestone, and one was right. Come inside and have some supper, said Mr Atkinson. His wife is a cheerful little woman, with the flaky red cheeks of the country bread. Her husband introduced me as a friend of his, who was an artist, and the result was unfortunate, for after the sardines and watercress had been removed, she brought out a Doré Bible, and I had to sit and express my admiration for nearly half an hour. I went outside, and found Atkinson sitting on the gravestone, smoking. We resumed the conversation at the point we had left off. Well, you must excuse my asking, I said, but do you know of anything you've done for which you could be put on trial? He shook his head. I'm not a bankrupt. The business is prosperous enough. Well, three years ago I gave turkeys to some of the guardians at Christmas, but that's all I can think of. And there were small ones too, he added as an afterthought. 
He got up, fetched a can from the porch, and began to water the flowers. Twice a day regular in the hot weather, he said, and then the heat sometimes gets the better of the delicate ones. And ferns, good lord, I could never stand it. Where'd you live? I told him my address. It was like an hour's quick walk to get back home. It's like this, he said. We'll look at the matter straight. If you go back home tonight, you take your chance of accidents. A cart may run over you, and there's always banana skins and orange peel, to say nothing of fallen ladders. He spoke of the improbable with an intense seriousness that would have been laughable six hours before. But I did not laugh. Best thing we can do, he continued, is for you to stay here till twelve o'clock. We'll go upstairs and smoke. It may be cooler inside. To my surprise, I agreed. We are sitting now in a long, low room beneath the eaves. Atkinson has sent his wife to bed. He himself is busy sharpening some tools at a little oil stone, smoking one of my cigars the while. The air seems charged with thunder. I am writing this at a shaky table before the open window. The leg is cracked, and Atkinson, who seems a handy man with his tools, is going to mend it as soon as he's finished putting an edge on his chisel. It is after eleven now. I shall be gone in less than an hour. But the heat is stifling. It is enough to send a man mad. That was W.F. Harvey's August Heat, as read by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is very tall and very English, and, most likely, drinking a cup of tea right now. He has a scar on his arm that he can't remember getting, but a terrible darkness floods his mind when he considers it. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children and despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. Thank you, Matt. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Hunter Liguori. Hunter Liguori is an award-winning author, professor, and historian, often found roaming old ruins, hillsides, and cemeteries. Her work can be found in Spirituality and Health, Irish Pages, Orion, and more. The Whole World in Nan's Soup is available now from Yehu Press. To learn more, visit hunterligori.org or at skytail underscore writer. Listen with me, children of the night, to Hunter Ligori's Jars of Spiders, a Tales to Terrify original. One. Marjorie Meadows worked at the college bookstore for four years and prided herself in knowing exactly where everything was in her department. She maintained a 2,200-square-foot section of a textbook area, 20 rows with 250 shelves. The first class was AC210, Introduction to Accounting, and ended in VDO230, Video Production. Each morning when she arrived, Marjorie walked the aisles to guarantee the shelves were in order. English 140, 230, 333, French 110, 210, 340. Marjorie sang the courses like a warm-up scale. If a book was sold, she knew it, and if one was moved out of place, it was recovered within two minutes. This was Marjorie's domain. One day, however... An average morning, she assumed, and also the beginning of summer session one, Marjorie walked her rows. Her eyes flitted back and forth from the course tag to the book and moved on quickly to the next class, but when she reached HIST 430, what immediately followed was a course she didn't recognize. HUSB 110, HUSB 110, HUSB 110. Marjorie did the smart thing and went back to the beginning, AC 210. Perhaps she made a mistake. 
She marched as if treading through drifts of snow until she came upon history. She braced herself as if from the snow and rain, turning her face away from the pelting ice and then forced herself to look again. The class was still there. HUSB 110. The course catalogue, her Bible, needed to be consulted. A glossy photograph of a student reading a book, sitting lethargically on a bench in the courtyard, graced the cover. On sunny days, Marjorie took her lunch break on the same bench. She scanned the printed courses feverishly. HUSB 110 was not listed. It had to be a mistake. The course catalogue was never wrong. Never in her four-year term. But why is this class on my shelf? Mine? Who would do such a thing to me? What a failure I've been to miss it! Marjorie left her text coordinator in charge and proceeded to the bathroom down the hall. In the mirror, she noticed the appearance of a new line on her clean linen face. Her red marigold-coloured hair was suddenly out of place, the clip having slipped, and a long strand snarled up like a thistle. Her summer dress was soaked under her arms and around her neck. This was the old Marjorie looking back. The weak, miserable cluck of a woman. A paper domino. The forgotten arm of a doll, twisted off in a child's rage. 2. The Arvac building was named after Richard James Vance, one of the founding fathers of the college, and had been restored recently. The asbestos gutted and new desks installed, the old standby blackboard dissembled and replaced with a white, erasable surface. Marjorie walked into room 102. This was where registration told her to go. A woman in her early forties, a woman in her early forties, dressed in an ash-grey pantsuit, welcomed her to the class. This was Mrs. Typhoid, recently widowed, again. Marjorie was handed a clipboard with a questionnaire. She was instructed to find a seat. Class would start soon. The class sat in a semicircle, desks turned inward, facing Mrs. Typhoid, who explained that HUSB 110 was a survey course and therefore would not cover all topics, but in the three weeks allotted to them, they would go over a large portion of information. The class was worth four credits if all the lab assignments were turned in. A syllabus was passed around to the six females, each alert and attentive. The first half hour of the class, Mrs. Typhoid went over her expectations, pointing out that the final was worth 50% of the grade. The woman in the blue scarf and dark sunglasses, having arrived late, raised her hand, blurting out that she had an idea for her final. Mrs. Typhoid assured her there'd be plenty of time to submit ideas and moved on to the subject of books. The class required six in all. Marjorie recalled seeing six individual books with a quantity of six on the shelf. She counted the women in the circle. Six. Six books, six women. I'm number six. Three. The questionnaire. Please answer each question truthfully. Only the professor will see your answers. One. How many times a week are you told you are ugly, pathetic, worthless, homely, a punt whore with no brains, a clucking waste to society, to life, a piss stain on the carpet that won't go away? More than five, more than ten, fifty and above, one hundred and above. Two. How often does your husband carve your skin with a knife? Does he make slashes, curve designs, or poke holes in your skin? Three. In the course of a week, how often are you slammed into the wall, 
the stairs, the stove, the treadmill, the coffee table, or other fixtures. 4. When was the last time you were regarded as a living being with feelings? 5. Which living being best represents how you felt in that moment? A. Mouse B. Bird C. Rabbit D. Deer E. Other 6. How often are you locked inside your home? If you feel you cannot leave even if the door is unlocked, you should count it. Did you quote-unquote break out to come to this class? The woman in the blue scarf sighed after reading the questionnaire. Marjorie noticed the way the blue scarf's nose had a slight bend, a familiar feature despite her efforts to conceal her face. The questionnaire sat untouched in most women's laps. Only the blue scarf answered the questions. Marjorie began thinking of her home. She pictured the dining room table standing alone and always polished, the draperies dust-free, the cabinet of dishes arranged, the periwinkle walls glistening. Why is this room there? No one has used it. No one visited the house. Her mind traced a historic timeline of the dining room. The house. Her life. It had been painted the spring after they moved in. They shared their first meal in the room on Mother's Day. Her firstborn was only six months old. Marjorie had cooked pasta and beef tips and served a red wine she'd received as a present, but couldn't remember the occasion. She remarked to her husband that the room looked pretty. She made another comment, but couldn't recall what it was since it was snuffed out of her recollection. The kitchen, a woman's domain since the birth of domesticity, was different in her house. It wasn't hers. Nothing was hers. She had no private space, nothing she ruled over, nothing she could offer an opinion about. From the kitchen, her memory climbed the stairs. Marjorie's hand slipped to her arm and rubbed the caterpillar scar that hadn't healed correctly. It wasn't a knife but a screwdriver that left the mark. She answered question two, with some hesitation. Her husband loved to confront her on the stairs. The stairs more than any other place in the house, offered a natural unsteadiness, like standing on a raft in rushing water. Sometimes he dragged her there just to talk. We're just going to talk, Marjorie. Just talk. You can do that, can't you? The bathroom. Where is my... and where is my... Marjorie never touched her husband's things. Everything was his, even if she bought it with her own money. Her own money. Ha! <laughs> A contradiction. She revisited the day the medicinal bottles weren't as he'd left them. She must have touched them. You did this on purpose, didn't you? When Marjorie didn't answer, he grabbed her. Clumps of her red hair were stripped from her head like weeds in a garden. Her face found the porcelain sink cold when pressed against it. In this position, her eyes settled on a green patch of mould under the nozzle then more under the toothbrush holder. Her husband emptied the medicine chest, then the cabinet, and then the closet of all its contents. He did this throughout the house over the course of the week. Her second child was nearly a year old at this time. Her first had recently turned four. Your job, Missy, is to put all this back, and it better be neat, do you hear me? If I find one bottle, one towel not in place, I'll kill you. I'll kill you.
Like this, he said, snaring her throat in his claw-like hand. You're a punt whore, bitch. You aren't worth the water I piss in. Slowly, he released his grasp and pushed Marjorie backwards toward the toilet and onto the floor. His penis dangled over her and a yellow stream splashed into the water, then onto her. He saw Marjorie turn away. A sick smile had come with a laugh as the hot stream stung her face. She would never falter in her task. Not in five years had she missed a day of work. Marjorie answered question one, three, and eventually five. She did this meticulously, as if she was in preschool and her penmanship was going to be graded. Marjorie raised her hand and was called on by Mrs. Typhoid, whose cheerful smile made Marjorie uncomfortable. She blushed, unable to make eye contact, but Mrs. Typhoid waited until Marjorie found the courage to speak. She asked, Is this a class on how to be a better wife? Mrs. Typhoid's smile remained, like the black permanent marker someone used mistakenly on the whiteboard. No, dear. This is HUSB 110. Are you sure you're in the right class? Marjorie looked over the questionnaire. She nodded as if automated. This is Husband 110. Intro to Husbands. We're going to start this week's lesson with the study of poison. 4. A living being, something animated, not necessarily something with a soul, depending on your spiritual grounding. Do animals and plants have souls? When Marjorie was eight, she used to play by the brook behind her parents' house. She had touched many living beings during that time. Fish, crickets, water sprites, spiders, horsetails, skunk cabbage... She remembered how spiders would run and hide or stand perfectly still so they wouldn't be detected, or play dead, stiff with legs curled. Her husband didn't like spiders, said the devil put them on earth to spite him. He went out of his way to kill them, once in a restaurant, another time in church. Marjorie didn't believe in God or church, but her husband did. He always felt holy after mass, even if he killed spiders. Thou shalt not kill. This confused Marjorie. She filled in question four at a stoplight on her way home. Seven years. Spider. Five. A new shipment of books arrived at the bookstore. Marjorie set to work receiving the books and putting them away on the appropriate shelves. When she passed HUSB 110, she lingered. After lunch... She lingered some more. One book remained of each title. She waited, sure another living being would purchase the sixth book. She hadn't paid her class fee. Mrs. Typhoid said she could do so at the next class when she returned. Perhaps another woman would take her place. The first book was called Small Repairs. This was the primary textbook for the class. She browsed the pages as if it was an unsolicited mail catalogue. Part one covered poisons. This was her homework for today. Read part one on poison. The bright pictures showed step-by-step -step instructions of how to mix household chemicals to kill undetected. A sidebar illustrated mixing procedures with chemicals often found in husband's tool shed. Part four discussed the mechanics of husband machinery like the lawnmower, the golf cart and the pickup truck, and gave suggestions on how to render each vehicle a death trap. 
Part 7. What to do and who to call after the deed is done. Part 11. Legalities, laws and legal proceeding. Part 12. New beginnings. As for secondary books, there was The Bell Jar Revisited, A Homemaker's Guide to Husband Suicide. The Life of Bathsheba Spooner, the historical account of a New England woman in the 18th century who had killed her husband and stuffed his body down a well. The Healer and the Witch, the history of women healers and women who poisoned their husbands in the name of freedom. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary E. Braddon, a classic literary book on the art of secrets. And lastly, A Common Housewife's Guide to Staging a House Burglary. Marjorie purchased the books five minutes before her shift ended. She read the first and second chapter on the bench in the courtyard, then proceeded to the ATM and withdrew the cash to pay for the class. Marjorie made a list of questions for discussion, as she was instructed, and crossed the Kemlon on the way to RFAC 102. 6. Hemlock Identified by its red spotted leaves, the plant ruled by Saturn, can grow to five feet, sometimes more, and will produce pretty white flowers in June. Hemlock is extremely dangerous if taken internally, informs the eclectic Materia Medica. Unbeknownst to Marjorie, her herb garden contained hemlock. She thought it was merely a pretty weed, when she didn't have the heart to uproot. The morning after her second class, Marjorie spent time in her garden, looking over her herbs. She felt inspired by the lecture on the history of women healers. She found it most exhilarating to learn how women healers were often pushed to the point of poisoning their husbands. It was an established practice and recorded in a plethora of documents, which Mrs. Typhoid photocopied and handed out in class. The sun warmed Marjorie's hands as she sifted through the cold dirt, clearing multiple weeds. The neighbourhood was mostly quiet, less the occasional car passing. A woman with bruises on her arms approached her from across the lawn. She was wearing shorts with a red top. A silk-screened robin was nestled between her uneven, bulky breasts. This was Mrs. Gentry. The same Mrs. Gentry who wore a blue scarf to every class and arrived on average ten minutes late. Mrs. Gentry sipped her black coffee and asked Marjorie if she needed help with her homework questions. Marjorie shook her head, realising she hadn't given much thought to homework. Mrs. Gentry prattled on about unhappiness, days of being young, although she was still in her thirties, and what herb she would use to cook her husband's prime rib. She'd already read the primary textbook, Small Repairs, twice. Three days before the final was due, Marjorie would spend the afternoon filling in a hole left by the removal of a five-foot-tall weed that had barely started blooming pretty white flowers. The next morning, an ambulance would block her driveway, making her late to work for the first time. She would also find herself consoling her grieving neighbour as the police questioned her about her husband's accident. Marjorie would play her part modestly, remembering Mrs. Typhoid's exact words. Less is more! Mrs. Typhoid's HUSB 110 reading packet was distributed in class to inspire further discussion on poison. Taken from the book Woman Defamed and Woman Defended, Marjorie's favourite excerpt was written by Jean de Meun in the 13th century. If the husband sleeps in her company, he puts his life in great peril. 
Indeed, sleeping and waking, he must fear most strongly that, in order to avenge herself, she may have him poisoned or hacked into pieces, or make him languish in a life of desperate ruses. 8. Marjorie's wedding photo sat in a brittle silver frame on the nightstand beside her bed. She was twenty-three. Her green eyes, like melancholy thyme, held the expectation of a future. Her husband glanced outside the border of the picture, perhaps distracted. England was playing Ireland in a Saturday afternoon football match. He had a hefty bet on England, the favour to win. Ireland won that day. Beside it, in a frame constructed of popsicle sticks, was a copy of their wedding vows. Her husband wanted to write his own vows and borrowed something from a friend. She didn't need to look at the words to remember what he'd said. She had remembered vividly the laughter that brewed in the audience when he was done. He loved the spotlight. He loved to be the master comedian. Cracking jokes was his specialty. Lighten up, he said before they were pronounced man and wife. Until death do us part. Or until one of us kills the other. Me first, I call it. <laughs> Nine. The first day of the second week of class, Mrs. Typhoid started with a discussion regarding the final. She asked each of her students if they were having any difficulties with topics or procedures. Mrs. Woods, a woman of older years, thought she'd need more than two weeks to complete her final, citing the fact her husband had been moved to the county hospital. Mrs. Typhoid smiled, flipping through several booklets jammed into her Mother Earth tote bag. She handed a pamphlet to Mrs. Woods, who was busy wiping a messy red stain from her blouse. The pamphlet specialised in provoking accidents in hospitals. Mrs. Typhoid recommended that Mrs. Woods should concentrate her efforts on bringing in harmful germs. If that didn't work, then she might ask for the IV to be reconnected, since each attachment increased a patient's health risks. Another woman, Mrs. Randall, the youngest and most recently married, was next to raise her hand. Married to a woman, she found the textbook far too specific to male spouses. Her wife was hardly ever home, working long hours in a law firm, and often volunteered in the evenings for a gay youth group, but she had her weapons. Neglect. Guilt. Anger. This was how Mrs. Randall felt beaten and abused, to the point of not knowing who she was anymore. Mrs. Randall felt paralysed by the mental ruinings of her spouse's mind. Like an assembly line, she was fitted, put together, hammered and fired, then scrutinised for perfection. Mrs. Typhoid consoled the crying woman and assured her there were many other techniques that she could approach her final with, and held up her worn copy of the Belgiar Revisited, first edition. Suicide, she began. Is like an unseen poison, an invisible knife, and your wife may be the perfect candidate. Mrs. Randall fished out her copy of the book from a plastic grocery bag at her feet. She brushed away the blonde strands of hair that fell into her eyes as she bent over. She did this as if commanded by an unseen force, as if someone stood over her shoulder saying, and get that hair out of your eyes, it makes you look ignorant. Mrs. Randall softly admitted to the class that she hadn't read The Bell Jar Revisited, nor had she even glanced at the corresponding assignment. She was busy, too consumed with feeling gripped by domestic pestilence, that she hadn't made time. 
Mrs. Typhoid explained that a cunning woman should have no problem staging another person's suicide. We all know Mrs. Sylvia Plath was the master designer of suicide, she said. She reveled in its dangerous thread, sifting the sands between life and death. She understood each of its balances, its strengths and weaknesses, and unraveled the keys for the enchanted mind. Mrs. Typhoid stood honourable, cupping the book close to her heart, and from between the pages she revealed a small portrait of Miss Plath and circulated it in class. Use her exploration to design your own crafty methods to bring about the end of your misery. We who sit in this room know Miss Plath wasn't trying to kill herself, like the critics and disbelievers have said. Only we, who've walked in her gilded steps, know for whom the task was really intended. Before class ended, Mrs. Typhoid handed out a paper titled Three Good Reasons. Marjorie's last assignment before the final was to provide three reasons why she would like to kill her husband. Each question was to be written in standard essay form, typed, double-spaced, with empirical evidence. 10. Sunday was a rainy day. Sparse patches of creamy blue sky surfaced with the sun only occasionally. Marjorie drove to the campus. She had told her husband she had a mandatory inventory at the bookstore and wouldn't be back until it was finished. Finished. A loaded word. Finished. What was she attempting to finish? Her homework? Her final? Her old life? The lonesome bench in the courtyard was soaked with water. She sat anyway. The cool against her dress and bottom was chilling but exhilarating, as if she had done something forbidden for the first time. It aroused her slightly. She held the umbrella in one hand, the other rested in her lap. She started to pull out a pad to take notes as her mind's memory constructed three good reasons. Marjorie realized she was alone. The rain's melody comforted her. She noticed a tear in her dress, touched it, then touched her skin, her thigh. Her heart beat faster. What was it that she wanted? Her finger dragged across her skin like a blunt knife toward the craggy outcrop, her own space. An inbound private cell with one entry, one exit. Life was like that. In, out, in, out. Her breath grew rapid. A robin flew into the aspen tree overhead. She tilted her head and body back, spreading open her legs, dropping the umbrella. Allowing the rain to touch her face until a place of paradise ripped through her cardboard form and the clouds burned red with colour. 11. Marjorie didn't have three good reasons for the assignment. Instead, she turned in three reasons why she would not kill her husband. Reason 1. She was lying on her bed, belly swollen like a newly inflated rubber ball. She was crying but couldn't remember why. Her husband had come to her, in his hands was a box of cookies, animal crackers, an image that invoked in her the apparition of her dead father, a kind man who often brought her home sweets. Sweets for a sweet girl. Her husband sat on the bed beside her and brought the animals to life with voices and names and stories. For a brief moment, she forgot her crying, her life. 
Reason two. Most damaged marriages resist divorce for the sake of the children. Marjorie jotted this note to herself as a possible reason not to complete her final, then scribbled it out. Does a dog that's abused still accept food and praise from the hand that beats it? Marjorie combined her thoughts and wrote it on the page, then quickly scribbled it out, then rewrote it. Reason three. He had told her not to leave the house that morning. Three hours later, she hadn't moved from the chair in the living room, hadn't realised she had sat so long. Her husband rushed through the door, smiling, like a carnival man, one who sold you three darts for two dollars, to play a fixed and fated game. Come here, come here, Em. She jumped at his words, accustomed to doing so. He led her out the front door, where she blocked the sun from her eyes. She followed him to a small garden with herbs. They're for you, baby. He knew she loved herbs. Didn't know why exactly, didn't give a damn about them himself. He only thought of her in that moment. Marjorie closed the umbrella. For her, the sun had come out on that day. She hoped to take the sun with her and start a new life. Her hair clung to her head and her hands and legs turned to rubber in the rain, but it didn't matter. All she felt was the sun, its warmth, and a new beginning. 12. When Mrs. Typhoid failed her first student in her entire career, she wanted an explanation. Marjorie waited after class to speak with her, as she was instructed. The other woman left without as much as a goodbye to Marjorie. They celebrated perfect A's and headed to the bar for cocktails. Marjorie wasn't invited to join the Widow's Bereavement Group either, nor the picnic for Fourth of July when they would introduce their new lovers. Mrs. Typhoid sat at her desk and reread Marjorie's paper, remarking that although it was good and had promise, it didn't really complete the job. Marjorie responded by quoting Jean de Meun. It was this last part. Or make him languish in a life of desperate ruses that appealed to Marjorie, that and the fact her children needed a father. 13. Jack Meadows didn't like spiders. He abhorred them, and often, over coffee after mass in the church basement, he confided in the minister his belief that spiders were the offspring of the devil. Marjorie Meadows liked spiders. In fact, she collected the ones she found in her garden in different shaped glass jars in her husband's basement. She cared for them and fed them and took careful precautions to hide them from sight. She was happy to see how quickly the spiders multiplied. So many happy spider babies. She felt as if they were her own. Like a mother, she transferred them into bigger jars as they grew. 14. Jack Meadows came home one day to find his wife missing. She left a note on the table explaining she was out and wouldn't be home until late. He wouldn't know until the following week when she told him herself that she'd gone to sit on the bench in the courtyard and watch the clouds turn red again. He was a predictable man. His anger hit hot and he sought out his lair in the basement where his bottle of Bushmills 12-year whiskey waited. He didn't notice the string across the stairs until he pulled it from his fractured leg at the bottom of the stairs. 
This was when he noticed his hands were bleeding from broken shards of glass and the many spider babies crawling on him. 15. No one knows for certain what happened to Jack Meadows that night in the basement. Neighbours, including Mrs Gentry, reported hearing terrified screams coming from the Meadows' house. When the police arrived, they found hundreds of broken jars, but nothing more. When Marjorie returned home shortly after dark, she played her part like the textbook instructed her to. Her tears seemed almost real. At the hospital, Marjorie was said to have broken down when the doctors gave their assessment. The number of cuts and gashes Jack Meadows suffered from was impossible to record. His left eye couldn't be reattached. They weren't sure how it had been severed. The doctor warned Marjorie that she wouldn't readily recognise her husband. Disfigured was a word used to describe him from now on. 16. Marjorie finished her morning house chores. Afterward, instead of going to her former job at the college bookstore, she'd make her way upstairs to the room she kept her husband in. He usually sat motionless in the chair overlooking a herb garden most of the day. He had a slight shake that the doctor said wouldn't go away, and his speech, though Marjorie could understand his murmurings, would not return. Hairs started to regrow around the shard of glass protruding from the top of his head that couldn't be removed without risking further damage to his mind. But Marjorie smiled at this. She knew his mind worked fine. Occasionally, she thought she saw a tiny smile in his eyes when she brought him a box of animal crackers, which she mashed with water on a baby spoon. On other occasions, she was certain she saw life in his eyes when she brought him a jar of spider babies. That was Hunter Ligori's Jars of Spiders, as read by Jasmine Arch. Jasmine Arch is a narrator, writer, poet, and podcaster from a rural corner of Belgium with two horses, four dogs, and a husband who knows better than to distract her when she's fiddling with stories. Her work has appeared on The Other Stories, both as a writer and narrator, and in NewMyths.com, among others. Find out more about her or her work at jasminearch.com. Thank you, Jasmine. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? 
head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we lay eggs beneath your skin with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.